I'm Christopher Leiden for Open Source with an old-fashioned sort of guy writer from this part of the world, a writer we love for his swerves and surprises. Andre Dubus III is the child of both a famous literary father and, same time, a rough, tough, milltown boyhood. Last time around with Andre and his memoir, Townie, I told him his growing up read like David Copperfield with heaps of crystal meth, junk TV, Fritos, daily fistfights, and Vietnam all thrown in. This time, reading his new novel, Gone So Long, I wondered out loud if Andre was stooping just a bit, getting back to the old neighborhood. Or was it me, feeling tired of the losers in his world? But you stick with Andre Debus for his imagination and his compassion. He's writing in Trump time, of course, but in the company more nearly of Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables of all kinds. Andre's flow is not what we're used to these days, not the self-conscious exploration of the writer's head. It's mostly the sound of sadness among characters we don't often get to care about in print anymore. I asked Andre if he was conscious of bucking the literary culture in this moment. I do know that my writing is not... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it doesn't sound like what is being written by a lot of people today, and that's that's okay with me. I really do not care for writing this self-referential to the writer. I don't. There's a lot of easy irony out there that I'm not a fan of. I particularly am not a fan of work that seems to poke fun at its characters to make the writer look a certain savvy way or ironic or world-weary or well-read. No, I really do try to step into whatever sacred beings from the dream world show up, these characters, I try to really just sink into the texture of their lives without judgment. And I was certainly trying to do that in this novel, Gone So Long. So I'm glad you got out of the (laughs) the thought that I was stooping because I didn't feel like I was stooping. There is a horrible event, as you know, at the heart of this story. And that I had to, I had to steal myself for that part. Let's locate the story. Three real characters Daniel, who killed his wife 40 years earlier, his daughter, Susan, their daughter, Susan, who was three at the time, and his late wife's mother, Lois, an embittered but fierce guardian of the family line. Mm. How did these people happen? The seed for the story came from a screenplay I was writing based on a, a man doing time in the mass prison system. It, and it's, it's a good story uh, a, about this man who's still in prison, but a man who actually changed his life in prison. Anyway, while working on this project years ago, I was interviewing a man who'd done time with him, and I bought him lunch. And I was really just trying to gather uh, details of, of that prison life with that man. And what at the end of the lunch, I while I was paying the bill, I just asked, the ex-con, who was very likable, by the way, and very uh, articulate and sort of sweet-tempered guy in his 60s. And um, I said, I got to ask, man, why'd you do time? He said, oh, I, I killed my wife. Mm. You know, and, and hopefully this is true for most of us, I have a particular rage uh, against men who hurt women and worse. I, I saw a lot of it as a kid. I have particular rage. So I... I preface what I'm about to say next with I, I could I just want to get away from him now, but I couldn't deny that I still had enjoyed his company. So I paid the bill, and as we're leaving the restaurant, and I want to get it out of there as fast as I can, I asked him if he had any kids. 
He said, oh, yeah, but they don't want to see me. Hmm. And that is the sentence that stayed in my head for about three years. Oh, yeah, but they don't want to see me. And, you know, if I've learned anything over the years of writing fiction, it's one central thing that I've learned to trust what I'm curious about, even if I don't want to be curious about it. You know, it's like falling in love with someone. It's nothing you can really choose to feel or not feel. And so that was the seed of it. The question was, what would it be like to be in this horrific situation? I get it. And the interesting underlying pull in the whole book is the father's need to see the daughter and her strange need to see him. They work it out, interestingly, and you got to talk about this, as writers. They're both trying to become writers, but they're also trying to figure out how they could ever see each other again, where the other is. He writes to his daughter, dear Susan, or dear daughter, or dearest Susan, or he can't figure it out. But there is this gravitational urge. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the writing came as a, as a surprise to me. In the novel, as you know, he has not seen her since she was three years old. She's now 43. He doesn't know where she lives, and then he does find her with the help of the Internet. But he doesn't want to go see her after having not seen her for all of her life, really, without sending her a letter first. So once he finds out in general where she is down in Florida, he starts to write her a letter. And it was a really interesting way for me to discover so much more about his story. I did not know until... You know, I'm writing his letter with him in the first person. I did not know that he had horrific jealousy and possessiveness towards his wife, the mother of the daughter. I did not know a lot about him. I did not know that his daughter was an aspiring writer. In fact, in the earlier drafts, she was an actress. <laughs> but every time I, you know, and I, you know, I used to act as a kid, and I, and I said, oh, I get to write about acting. But every time I would get to the acting stuff, this, you know, that built-in shockproof, you know what detector that Hemingway talked about would go off. And she was sending me signals loud and clear that, no, I'm a writer, and I didn't want to write about writing. But I believe that she was a writer, an aspiring writer. And here she is in, in the beginning of the novel writing the kind of book she hates, which are memoirs. She calls them memoirs. And, and so here she is writing this uh, reluctant memoir straight about her own young life. And then he's writing this letter to her. And it, you're right, it's sort of a braided device throughout the beginning. But that has to come out of partly your, your experience as a writing teacher mm-hmm. at UMass Lowell. You've, you've watched a lot of people struggle what is that about? I wonder, at the end, is it therapeutic? Do people solve their problems in writing at all? Well, I try to talk them out of looking at it that way because I think if you, if you do write as honestly as you can about the past, and I have this, that great Faulkner line that the past isn't even past, it's not going to be therapeutic. It's, it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be sticking your face in a fire. I think honest writing does a number on the writer. I don't think it's therapeutic at all. But I think it's still good for the world, and it might be ultimately good for the writer. The character of Susan as an aspiring writer not only came from all my work with undergrads and graduate students over the years, but also adult conferences, which I teach throughout the year here and sometimes abroad, which tend to get accomplished adults, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, who have worked really hard for everybody else, and now it's their time. It's their time to write their book. And I do find that ambition very kind of moving and poignant. And I saw Susan in that way, too. She just wants to be part of the conversation. Talk about these people, Andre, and how you know them. Some of them feel like they're 
developments of characters on the street in Towney. Yeah. There's a carnival, Carney, Hampton Beach mm. background here of some of these characters. Names like Tony Scarf and Jimmy Squeeze and <laughs> yeah. Chucky Finn. Let's not call them deplorables, but they're people who are neglected, not only in our fiction these days, but maybe in our lives. They're marginal economically. They're hustlers, sort of. At best, they're hustlers. What's our problem with them? Or what's their problem in this postmodern world? Well, I don't think anyone pays attention to them. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a yellow dog Democrat who voted you know, on the left my whole life and have, and I can't imagine not doing that. But I did not like Hillary Clinton calling all those people deplorables. I think she was talking about deplorable behavior of many of them. We all know that racism and misogyny has been given an open door these days. These are the people nobody pays attention to. Mm. They drive the trucks. They deliver the beer. They're on your roof. They're painting the bathroom. They're serving the coffee. And what's so strange is, I know I'm a writer's son, and I'm a professor, and I'm an author, but I grew up with these people. These are really the people I, I feel closest to, although I'm not one of them. These people, you know, house painters, guys who work in the carnival, waitresses, arcade owners... Uh, these are people I'm just really comfortable with. And I do see them when I'm driving my truck down the street and I talk to them. And they, so they showed up in the dream world of this novel without my trying to write about people like that. Speak of violence in this world, but also in your text. Your novel is a place where violence could happen anytime. Yeah. That's not the world we live in, most of us. Bar fights don't happen well, much I, anymore. I, I've outgrown them, but they're still there. <laughs> you know, you know I, I told a friend once, well, they, people don't bar fight anymore. Said, well, that's just you're not hanging out in the right bars anymore. But no, I, I sadly, I, I think violence is all too well and alive. What we're dealing with now, though, is gun violence. 33,000 plus people every year in this country get shot to death by handguns alone. Mm-hmm. I didn't face gun violence as a kid, and nobody in this book is facing gun violence. But there is horrific violence in that story. But not in our fiction, Andre. But why? You tell me. We could pick up today's paper anywhere in the country and we would read about a murder, a rape, a strangling. It is a constant shadow. I don't know if it's because I had a violent youth in my own life that I'm attuned to it, but I, I don't set out to write about violence, I'll tell you. It just shows up. I never get over the scenes in your memoir townie mm. but the kid who came around the corner every day to beat you up yeah until you decided wait a sec i'm gonna turn the tables on this guy yeah and you did and i did it took a while and again the big thing that uh, i learned about fighting was was not so much how to throw a punch but that uh, you taught me yeah with that that horrible that that membrane of of inviability that should be around every human being you know where you you can't violate someone's sacred space Without asking, but in a fight, you have to violate it right away. And once you learn to do that, you can always do it. And that's what I learned. Sadly, I think it's what the main character Daniel learned as a young man. I did draw a little bit on my life for the beginning of his life, where he was a bullied kid who, who didn't take it after a while and would, would fight back. But then he has this horrible ability to be violent with his wife, which I, as a man, I find really hard to fathom. I really find it very difficult to even imagine raising my hand to my wife or daughter or sisters or any female human being. And so to have him do what he did, that wasn't easy to write. Can you describe what it's like to be 
a male writer writing a sort of macho fiction out of your childhood experience, but also being a sort of Me Too character too. Yeah, yeah I'm, well, I think we, we are multitudes, aren't we, right, to paraphrase? I do try to take on whatever psyche comes in this, this dream world of fiction writing, and I do try to become my female characters, and I try to let go of whatever maleness I have. Of course, that's impossible. We always There's that great line from Flannery O'Connor, a writer's beliefs are not what she sees, but the light by which she sees. Mm. And my light, of course, is masculine because that's who I am, but I sure try to let go of it when I'm writing from the point of view of women. But you're right. There is um, hopefully all those all those layers are in there. I, I sure as hell hope it's not just a macho book. I actually don't think it is. I I, I always shoot for sensitive. <laughs> I actually don't shoot for sensitive, but I, I I hope that it is always a sensitive treatment of these human beings, whatever comes out of me. Andre, what did you learn in your prison observation, and what does Daniel learn in prison? I've taught in prisons and county jails, and I just had the privilege of, of teaching a writing class at San Quentin with Tobias Wolf last week on the West Coast. We taught her creative writing class to 22 men doing life for murder. I, you know, I know it's bumper sticker Christianity, but hate the sin, not the sinner. To a man, each one of them had done the most horrific thing possible, and yet each one of them was so sincere in their desire to want to express something truly and well with words. Mm. And leaving there after some very moving readings by these guys, some of whom have been there since they were 19 years old, now they're 55, I felt profoundly yet again that murderers are not born, they're made, they're created, they're formed. That is not to excuse them for a microsecond of their horrific behavior, and many of these people should never get out. I am not saying that. What I am saying is stepping into Daniel's psyche was such a a lesson in uh, empathy and embracing the gray. For I detest with all my soul what he did, but so did he. And I think the biggest thing that he learned in prison was uh, he became, like, like a lot of men and women who do hard time, as you know, institutionalized. And there's a great experiment, not experiment, it's a horrible thing, where this beautiful polar bear was kept in a 12 by 12 cage, you know, that famous story in this, I think, in the West Coast, a zoo. Finally, the zoo is, is finished. They lift the cage, and, and that, that bear only walks 12 feet by 12 feet. He's got acres to play, and he walks 12 feet by 12 feet by 12 <laughs> feet. And I think a lot of inmates who get out are the same way. And so you know in the beginning of this novel, Gone So Long, Ahern, he's hired a man to build a, a fence around his little acreage. He's got, I mean, which he makes a 40 by 40 patch of ground. He's got a little trailer. He's got a shed. He does his caning outside. And, and his hours are really regimented. So what I discovered mainly was... He saw some horrific violence in prison. He escaped a lot of it himself. But he found a way to live, to put himself in his own solitary once he got out. And as you know, when the novel begins, he's now dying, and he's been out of prison for about 25 years. But he still lives as if he's in prison. Mm. In his own sort of imposed, solitary, mechanized existence. Never violent again. No, but he's still got the temper. And, and you remember that moment when he's, he's driving the old man to the store for his medicine and, and the, the, some businessman, a Range Rover, parks in handicapped space and Daniel's, Daniel's right in his face and 
Daniel calls a younger him Danny. He doesn't want to be called Danny anymore. Danny's the one who did these horrible things. This Known is, as the reactor. The reactor. Uh, the reactor. He was a comic book reader, Danny. And he said, you know, I could have called myself the reactor, like a comic book char character. And that's what he sends to his daughter, Susan. Writing it, I, I got pulled deeper and deeper into his whole scene and um, was actually kind of surprised how much... I don't want to say I enjoyed being with Daniel, but I, I not only tolerated him, his company was not disdainful to me, hmm. which it was, but it did a number on me, I think. I'm just not quite sure what. Do we want to speak about Lois, the grandmother? Yeah. Her Carlton cigarettes, <laughs> her Merlot, bad wine. Her hazelnut coffee with Splenda. Now you're talking. <laughs> Introduce her. She presides in a certain way over this unfinished scene. She's got a gun. She'd love to kill Daniel if she yeah. ever saw him again. She's got a gun. She's 83 years old. She lives in this, this little house off a of county road in Arcadia, Florida. Uh, it's where she sort of escaped after the loss of her daughter to murder. It's where she took her granddaughter to raise her away from the whole scene and to really protect her. And, and Lois uh, felt all of the childhood of Susan that her job was to do better for her than she did for her, her mother, uh, Lois's daughter, Linda. So when the novel opens, we discover she's an antiques, she got an antique shop in this little town of Arcadia, which really is just full of antique shops. It's a really fascinating old cattle town in the, out in the, uh, the floodplains of, of Florida. It's really an interesting place. It was interesting to discover, though, that this is what she does, and it's in the antique store surrounded by these wonderful objects made by people who are long dead that she feels at peace. Mm. It's the only place she does, which I found kind of poignant. Mm. But she's very angry, isn't she? She's kind of an angry, cranky yep. voice in the book. Yep. Fritz Eichenberg, wood engraver, great friend of mine, mm. old man, illustrated all of Dostoevsky, taught me how to read Dostoevsky. But he always, old German accent, but he would say, I'm looking for the redemptive energy. It's the light in the picture. You know, mm. his wooden graves are very dark, but he was mm. always looking for the light. And he would say about writers we knew, he's not feeling, uh, looking for the redemptive energy. Mm -hmm. Where's the redemptive energy working on these people, Andre, in your book, in your fiction? Well, I, it's a great question, Chris, and I, I can tell you that I don't ever try to look for that, but I sure hope for it. And the reason I try not to look for it is I'm afraid that if I find it, I will hit the gong too hard and it'll be sentimental. And, and then I'll get a movie of the week little ending. And so what I try to do, I'm, I am, I'm telling you, I, I, I pray for openness and receptivity before I write every day. I pray to receive the truth in whatever <laughs> I write. And I would love a, a redeeming, shining, lovely, encouraging moment. I think Dostoevsky found it. I mean, it's not. Yeah. you don't have to be corny. No, you no, or you silly don't. Or no, no, you don't. I do think it's in that book, and and I think it comes. I towards, do too. And it, it comes towards the end, and I was pleasantly surprised that it did. But I don't want to give anything away for anyone who might want to read this book. I work really hard to find those moments at the end. You know, we've talked about endings. I was talking on a panel recently about how to end a novel. I said, "Beats me, man." But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the kind of ending that I that I try for and the kind that I really love in literature, of course, the finest ending that will ever be written by anyone is probably James Joyce's The Dead. 
that final image. But I think the ending has to be. I'm not. I'm no musician, but cue the snow there. Right? Oh, the snow! My God, the snow! I. I for anyone out there listening who has not read Joyce's The Dead, just go get Dubliners and read The Dead. And read it aloud with somebody you really enjoy and love and care about. It, it's, yeah, it's incredible. I always remember something you taught me out of Townie, which was that real guys in that world don't jaw-jaw in the bar. No foreplay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the first thing is throw a punch. Yeah, if you Before know if does. you know this is a fight, there's no there's no oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah. It, <laughs> so is your old man. It's boom. Speak about writing with this very male history background in the world of the women writers who so fascinate us now. Yeah, Rachel Cusk might be the new one. Mm-hmm. We lived with Elena Ferrante for a year. I did. Zadie Smith might be our favorite person in the whole universe. What's missing, and and what is the guy opportunity that's still left? Well, I'm hesitant to be the guy spokesman <laughs> because you're nominated. Well, I try to write from a more universal stance. Where if I had my druthers, the name and wouldn't be on the book, and you wouldn't know if if a man had written this or a woman had written this. I actually would like to write so deeply that no one can tell who wrote this. What kind of a human being wrote this? Who knows? Who is this person from? I think that's a question that the readers of the world need to ask. But as a writer, I don't ask that. And I'll tell you why. Hmm. Because I don't, I think if there's one enemy, any one enemy to creativity, it's self-consciousness. There's a great line from Nadine, one of Nadine Gortimer's novels. And by the way, another woman writer who wrote beautifully about physical violence and racial violence and apartheid, for that matter. But where there's a, one character in this novel by Gortimer who has an insight as to what sincerity is. And it's, a, oh, sincerity is never having an idea of oneself. Isn't that beautiful? Wow. Isn't that beautiful? You don't have one eye on the mirror to see how you're doing. You're not thinking about this. You're shedding your clothes psychically and otherwise, diving in recklessly to see what you find, and the self be damned. There's a wonderful line, I believe, from Philip Lopate. He was giving advice in an essay about writing the personal essay. And he said, by all means, one must avoid the stench of the ego. Mm. Isn't that great? It's a great way to live your life, too. So why do I preface my answer with these quotes? Because... I try to never think about what other writers are doing because I don't want to get in there as if I'm competing with someone. I, God bless you. Go write your beautiful work. I'll read it. If I love it, I'll love it. If I don't, I don't. But we're all invited to this party. So for me, I, I don't have a consciousness of myself as a masculine writer. Just because I've been in brawls and still lift weights and drive a truck, I'd like to think of myself as a sensitive man <laughs> who's, who's above and beyond all that. I think you are, Andre. While writing this novel, this is the climate we're in. And so to, to embody a man who did the worst thing possible to a woman, it was, it was tough. It was tough. Because I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's to, to hold all of those emotions in, in one psyche, which in this case, my own. <laughs> Why do we learn so little about the moment and what he was thinking, even what he did physically? You know, I know this novel's a bit of a slow burn. We do get to it. But I think that extreme violence like sex needs to be handled the way Emily Dickinson would talk about it. Tell the whole truth, but tell it slant. I think it's really important to come at it sideways. Especially with Daniel, though, I think his memory of that horrific moment 
where he does the worst thing possible a human being can do, is fractured. And it comes to him in, in a kaleidoscopic bits. And that's why it's treated that way in the book. Take us to that moment that we're just afraid to see. Okay. I should tell you that Danny has now made it to the house of his daughter he has not seen since she was three, and she's now 43. He clears his throat. He makes himself look right into her face, and please, no, no, but it's Linda's face. It's her face right after he did it. So still, everything stopped, everything beginning to come so clear to her. And the thing is that that night he'd been trying to change himself. On the way home from work, he told the voices in his head to shut their sick mouths. He told Captain Suspicion to leave him the hell alone. Linda Doobie was his. She had chosen him. She had given him little Susan. And when he walked into his house, Linda was cooking fish, haddock or cod. He doesn't remember, only that it was white and sitting in a pan with slices of butter laid on it, ready to go in the oven. And Linda had already peeled the potatoes she was going to fry up, and she was getting ready to slice them. And Danny said, want some help? And he'd taken the knife from her before she could answer, and he started slicing the first potato, and that's when she said, you're the one who needs help, Danny. Her voice was low, without enough air in it. And then she started saying other things to him, and it was like a rock getting pushed off a hill, how it rolls slow, then picks up speed. And he could see that everything she was saying to him, she'd been rehearsing in her head for a long, long time long enough for the snake in his veins to know that every hissing word he'd been whispering in his blood was true, because why would she be leaving him if she didn't have someone to leave him for? And then he was squeezing her arm, and she was pulling back, screaming, You can't stop me, Danny! You can't! You can't! You can't! But he'd been trying to change. Hadn't she seen that? Couldn't she see that it wasn't too late? He was trying to be a better man, and if he hadn't, he never would have started slicing that potato, and he never would have held in his hand what he'd held, and he never, ever, it would never, I never loved anyone like her. These stinging eyes, his shaking hands still on his money, Linda gone, his little Susan gone. I never stopped thinking of you, Susan. All these years, I, I need you to leave. She sets his letter and her glasses on the kitchen table. She stands there and crosses her arms under her breasts. Mm. Andre de Boost III, reading from Gone So Long. Thank you, Andre. Thank you. Thank you, Andre de Boost, and thank you, listeners, for being part of the open source conversation. I'm Christopher Leiden. 